Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for your download. Thanks for joining us um, as Brandon Stiver and I, Phil Dark, um, get to have another great show with another amazing, amazing guest. So, Brandon, what's going on in your world? Well, uh, yeah, we're doing all right. Kids are back in school somewhat, but, you know, still being cautious and quarantines and, but I'm doing well, man. I was in California, uh, last week and, uh, got to celebrate my brother's wedding, which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. And, uh, I'm hoping to, uh, go on road trip dads, uh, hopefully, hopefully oh. this week, if, if that works out. So got some good stuff going on, some, some tough stuff as well as is life, but, uh, yep. But uh, we'll kind of see. Uh, how, how about you, Phil? How, how are things in your neck of the woods, man? Well, last time we uh, we mentioned um, or I mentioned the fact that my mom was in the hospital. Unfortunately, um, she did not make it, uh, which really was a shock to all of us. So sorry. Um, yeah, it's it's brutal. As I say, it's impossibly hard. Um, appreciate prayers for my dad and my family. Um, very much need them. We have. God has given us a peace uh, that does, you know, that peace that with passes all understanding that we, that we ask for, for God to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, you know, that's, that's he has been doing that, but man, it's so hard. It's so hard. It comes in waves. Um, but, you know, as I said the last time, it's, it's, it's real. It's what a lot of the kids that we're working with have dealt with at much younger ages than I am. Yeah. Um, and uh, the thing about my mom, she, she's an amazing woman, lived a full life. Yeah. Uh, the tribute we we got to have for her was incredible. We were able to see her um, in the hospital and spend some time with her before uh, she went to be with Jesus. And so a lot to be thankful for. God gave us some gifts during that time that uh, that were amazing. Um, and like I said, we were able to celebrate together with friends and family. And and a lot of people haven't been able to do that over the last couple of years. So, yeah. so I, I, I consider... You know, I'm still very grateful, um, but we're going to miss the heck out of my mom. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. And and just been praying for you, man. And it was uh, good to see you at CAFO Summit as we got to mm-hmm. connect with a lot of uh, friends and colleagues in this space. And uh, getting that time with you was 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 special to me. Uh, I appreciate that. And we've just been praying for you, brother. And, uh, you know, and I, I know I speak on behalf of the, the Think Orphan audience and our community that we've been able to have here that you've been uh, the patriarch of, uh, we're just going to keep praying for you and your family and, and, uh, in this, in this challenging time, but, um, yeah. thank, thank you so much for also honoring us, uh, with that update and, and we'll keep praying, but yeah, for sure. And and thank you. And and I too, uh, love the time together at KFO. It was, it was very life-giving for me for sure. Um, it really is. It's what we talk about on this show. It's what we've talked about over the years. Um, I mean it when I say that, you know, these folks, the, folks out there you know who i'm talking about you become like family and to be able to go um and spend time with with you um i know some of you are listening in here um was it was it was truly was life-giving it was it was a great time and it's what i hope everyone uh, listening can really see as part of the reason we're doing all this is to be able to form that community where we can be there for each other when uh when we're when we're hurting i'll never you know never forget the moment that Rick Morton, you know, who many of you know from the from the last uh, few seasons as my co-host, he saw me, he excused himself from a conversation, walked over me, did not say a word, just gave me a big hug. Yeah. And uh, it was it was special. It was a yeah. special moment that that you just know what people need when you know those people. And yeah. so, you know, I, I'm so grateful and, uh, and I'm grateful that we got to finally meet in person. Too. So <laughs> that was, that was great. That was Seemed great. long overdue, long uh, very, overdue, very, very much overdue. So, but it was good because I'm not in Tanzania anymore and COVID allowed for people to meet together. So yep. praise God for all that. That was definitely yes. good. And, and, uh, yeah. and I got to kind of interview our guest today. Even though I haven't been able to interview him both of the time, so he's been on the show. So, so tell our tell our people out there, our friends, who you got to interview again. Well, you didn't get to interview him again, but again on Think Orphan, we got to interview this guy without me doing the interview. So, who was it, man? And and yeah. uh, you know, I'm I'm very envious as as definitely have been, but I did get to 
have him on a panel that I was facilitating. So that was, that was almost as good, but yeah, anyway, who, which who was who a great today? panel, which was a great panel, by the way. And, and we are of course talking about none other than, uh, I like to say the man, the myth, the legend, Ian Forber Pratt <laughs> coming on, uh, getting to talk with us, uh, about what he's doing currently. Uh, last time when we had him on the podcast, Kelly interviewed him, uh, did a great job learning about what he was doing in foster care in India. Uh, but, but this guy keeps on moving and, uh, it's mm -hmm. been awesome to kind of reconnect with him over the last several months, just between, uh, what he's doing, uh, here, uh, domestically in the United States and, and kind of some of the things that we're passionate about at 1 million homes. So, uh, it just, uh, lended an opportunity to reconnect with Ian and, uh, just kind of, yeah, learn more about what he's doing at Siri, what he's doing, um, at the Institute for Child Welfare Innovation, a lot of stuff that you guys are going to be getting into this uh, episode. So I uh, had a great time uh, connecting with our buddy Ian and, uh, and excited to get this podcast out. Well, I am uh, so excited to be joined by a friend and a colleague, somebody that has been affecting change in child welfare and care reform for, for quite a few years now. And uh, Ian Forber-Pratt, uh, it has been a little while since having you on the podcast. How are you doing today, brother? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. The kids are back in school. I, I you know, no complaints over here. Hopefully not yet, but, uh, but it's great to have you on. Um, I would just, uh, you know, before we get into this uh, episode, I would love to just kind of point people back, you know, uh, there have been times where we've been able to have the same guest on more than once. And uh, Ian, the last time you were on, it was 2016. So kind of early years for the Think Orphan podcast. Um, I would encourage our listeners to go back and, and check out Ian's previous podcast, uh, episode 30 uh, in the archives at thinkorphan.com. But uh, Ian, for, for those listeners that uh, haven't heard from you in uh, five years or those that uh, are maybe uh, haven't heard you yet, um, I, I would love if you could just take a second and just kind of uh, introduce yourself and, and, and even catch us up but what, uh, on life over the last five years. I know you've gone through a number of changes and family changes and all sorts of stuff. So uh, yeah, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, well, well, thanks, Brandon. I, I so appreciate it. Um, I can't believe that it was 2016. I was a little shy of a decade into my career, which dates me a little bit. Um, and as you mentioned, a lot has changed. So when we spoke in 2016, I was India-based, um, running an organization called Foster Care India, as well as I had started something called the Center for Excellence under my role um, for an international organization called Siri. But I'd like to just start with connecting with every listener out there and with you as well, is that you know, the, the privilege of being able to do a podcast in this way and thinking about how we are just fiercely advocating for children and families and communities to be together is not lost on me. In these difficult times with an uncertain world in many ways, I'm grateful for the opportunity for us all to connect and, and come together. And so I'm speaking to you from St. Louis, Missouri uh, in the USA. And I've been here for two and a half years. Um, but before that, I spent a decade based in India, in New Delhi. And as I mentioned, I had two hats when we met last time. And now I'm wearing three hats, actually. Um, but the first and most important hat of all of those is I am a father and a son and a husband. Um, we have a three-month-old baby girl, and we've got a four-and-a-half-year-old. And then we also have my wife's little sister in kinship care as well, meaning that we've taken a relative under our guardianship here in America. Um, and so we are learning every parenting lesson and every aspect of a uh, of, of raising children in this world right now and brings our hearts alongside families and children and communities in, in a new and different way for us. Um, That's awesome, man. Yeah, it, it's so funny, like even hearing you kind of say, oh, two and a half years, you guys have been back, you spent a decade, you know, uh, or a decade plus in India. 
is very similar, actually, even with us. Uh, my wife and I, we moved back from Tanzania two and a half years ago. Um, and we also, uh, we have uh, biological kids as well as an adopted child. So, uh, you know, there's, there's just a lot of similarities and, and just kind of love that piece. Um, so you're back in the States now. I mean, what, what, what are you up to? You're in St. Louis. Uh, uh, what is, what does life look like now? What are some of those other hats? Yeah. So the other hats are that I am now doing domestic work. So working in the United States in the field of child welfare, foster care and adoption and community based care uh, and founded an organization called the Institute for Child Welfare Innovation. So I'm the CEO of that organization. Um, but continually, I continue my role as the director of global advocacy as well at Siri. And Siri is an international organization based in Southern Texas in the US. And I proudly am part of that organization, and we can talk more about that later. And then I'm teaching at Washington University in the Masters of Social Policy and the Masters of Social Work programs. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, Ian, anytime I've, I've been able to hear you speak, I actually sat in on one of your classes last year uh, that you guys did digitally there at the, at the university there. Um, you know, being in interagency meetings with you, you know, anytime I kind of hear you speak and just kind of out of your experience in India, but then you've also been able to consult on other initiatives, whether with Siri or with some other partners, such as uh, CAFO, I, I know you, you were doing some consultation on um, looking at programs in the global south. Um, I, I know we have a mutual point of contact in Uganda that both of us have kind of from different angles and in different services, you know, connecting with organizations, you know, as you kind of have uh, a pulse, so to speak, on what care reform is looking like from a global standpoint. And, and of course, there's differences in context and so forth. But from your vantage point, you know, where is care reform at, you know, in the global south? And, and, and what are some of the ongoing gaps that, that from your experience and from projects that you've been involved with, what are some of the ongoing gaps that, that still need to be addressed uh, when it looks at uh, care reform in the global south? Yeah, thanks for asking. I I want to level set first before I go to the answer of the question of what I understand care reform to be. And that's the idea of completely examining uh, care, in this case, care for orphan children or children that are vulnerable, um, a system, examining an entire system for better outcomes, positive outcomes for children. And so what I believe it looks like globally is looking at the idea of institutionalization becoming a last resort for children and families and communities and family-based care being the first resort. And we're seeing that in different iterations throughout the globe. In the global South, I wanna introduce a concept that I'm kind of framing now as the unbuilt bridge. And I'm hoping that this is a theme throughout our podcast. And what I mean by that is, depending on the country, a decade ago, two decades ago, the seeds of critically examining, examining institutionalization started, where people started saying, hmm, do children really thrive in an institutional setup? And then either private organizations, faith-based or non-faith-based, started shifting the needle a little bit towards family-based care options, whether it be foster care, whether it be sponsorship, whether it be kinship care, those things began to happen. Now, since about 2009 or so, and then really escalating in the past five years, we've had global legislation, country level legislation and then regional level legislation that is pushing hard for a deinstitutionalization, which for many is close orphanages and open family-based care options in one way or another. And this is probably not new to many, but I believe that in the global South right now, we are struggling with what I'm gonna call the unbuilt bridge. The idea that any system, when you examine kind of system dynamics and system design, any system is not going to be able to pivot quickly, to change quickly. 
And so many organizations are working really hard to do family-based care, but missing that bridge in between institutionalization and family-based care. Yeah, no, and, and I think what you're putting your finger on there, a, a component of that is some of the things that we've actually seen. Um, uh, last year, Faith to Action did a survey on transition support. And, you know, to me, this is, this is you, you mentioned law and policy. So I'll kind of speak from my own experience as well. If I am holding a policy uh, on alternative care in Tanzania, and I'm going to, first off, I'm going to flip to the back page and I'm going to say, who wrote this thing? And I'm going to see, oh, it's UNICEF. It's this big NGO. It's that big NGO. And I'm going to open up. I'm going to see those policies. And literally a policy with the stamp of, you know, United Republic of Tanzania on it says uh, children's homes and orphanage placements are to be a last resort. And yet functionally, I had always seen, actually, I've literally seen kids go from their family, maybe a kinship placement, maybe a parent to the Department of Social Welfare and then to an orphanage all in the same day. Functionally, that's not the case. So what we need is that implementation piece, especially as we are seeing these laws and policies uh, uh, kind of you know, come down um, and hopefully we can actually implement them in an effective and a safe manner. Um, so yeah, building that bridge is, is, is huge. Um, well, and I'd love to challenge you in the best way possible in the idea of what we need is implementation as well. So for years, that was what I kind of responded was we need implementation. I believe that's 100% correct, but there are other dimensions involved as well. So for example, yeah, um, KFO and a number of partners have done this immersive simulation lab where they bring together institutions and they help them think through all the dimensions that are needed in change. So implementation planning makes perfect sense, but there is a fundamental mindset change and skills change that need to happen, I believe, concurrently. Because the best laid plans, if people aren't bought in and we haven't accounted for basically kind of the, the mindset trajectory of human beings and a deep level accounting for relationships and trust in all of this, then a lot of implementation plans will be kind of finite or they will be out there as kind of bursting innovations but they won't sustain. Oh, that's so good, man. Yeah, you, you really, and, and to do that, you have to take into mind the culture, uh, the context, uh, the, the, uh, the interrelationships between people, how institutes communicate with one another. I mean, you really kind of have to look at quite a bit to kind of create that environment or that ecosystem where that implementing uh, such and such policy, whether at an organizational level or even, even at a national level is actually gonna be viable. Uh, so uh, it's just incredible. So, so, and, and now you're working in the States and of course there's, you know, different impl implications uh, for what this might look at at the federal level, the state level, the county level, you know, from a contextual standpoint, but um, you know, care reform is happening here too. <laughs> so could you give us a general view of what care reform lo looks like in the United States as you've been able to kind of dig in uh, with these different hats on in there in St. Louis and, and other places that you're engaged. Um, you know, what, what is, what does the general uh, view look like uh, care reform right here uh, in our own backyard? Yeah, I appreciate the, the platform to share about that. So in the U S in 2018, there was pretty game shifting legislation that was passed called the families first services and preservation act. And the Families First, and I think I just botched that, it's the Families First Preservation and Services Act, FFPSA. And so it was passed as a budget reform in 2018. And it basically asks all small group care and foster care to reduce and that community-based care and especially prevention work to drastically increase. And it actually changes the way that the money flows, at least in part, from the federal government to the state government. And due to COVID-19, as I mentioned, it passed in 2018, 
Once COVID-19 hit, the implementation of this act has been delayed significantly, and a lot of it is just kicking into gear now in 2021. But it is what I believe is the first time that care reform is happening with money behind the legislation in the world in a round two. So what I'm seeing is that around the world, there have been many care reforms from big institutionalization to a wide range of family-based care. There are many places in the world that have gone directly from institutionalization to community-based care and skipped foster care and all those things. But when it comes to legislation that completely alters the budget, this is the first one that I'm seeing them say, foster care actually is not the solution and preserving communities is the solution. And it's gonna be fascinating to see how this unfolds in the coming five to 10 years. Yeah, that's so good. I, 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 it will be fascinating to kind of see how that unfolds. I, I love the prevention piece. I'm, I'm huge on prevention. I'm huge on preservation. Um, so even seeing that articulated within that, you know, policy or legal set is, is, is really remarkable. You know, one of the things uh, after I moved back from Tanzania, I spent a year um, working in foster care in California. And one of the things that we were dealing with at the state level and it, and it related to the family first policies as well um, at the federal level. But we had this continuum of care reform where basically you were having the, similar. We want to decrease congregate care settings. We want to increase family based care and preventative services. Um, and what we started to see, and I don't know if this is a flaw in the system or what have you, is you did start to see some of those congregate care um, settings decrease. Um, but you didn't necessarily see the corresponding increase in alternative family care placements, including like around intensive services, foster care. So with some of these policies, are you seeing, I mean, if you nail prevention, maybe you're okay. But with some of these policies, are you seeing some kids kind of get stuck? Because then what we started to see happen is those kids might still end up in congregate care, but now they're leaving the state altogether. So uh, are, is there potentials with with even this kind of new policy that is is aimed so well um, for kids to still kind of fall into certain gaps or cracks in the in the system and kind of be underserved, which is what we have seen a lot with, um, you know, traditional foster care in the states. What's your read on that kind of stuff? Yeah, it, you just explained the unbuilt bridge. So that kind of chasm between the idea of congregate care and the idea of prevention. So, and we're seeing it globally. So there, and, and actually it's, it's so interesting you mentioned this because I spoke about it in the 2016 podcast. There's a theory called diffusion of innovation theory and diffusion of innovation theory basically says that you've got innovators, you've got early adopters kind of that take up any new idea. And then you've got a chasm where kind of that idea gets challenged significantly. And then you get to an early majority, a late majority, and then the last people that take up a new idea. And one of the most pivotal pieces to overlay diffusion of innovation theory is that you're accounting for the time it takes people's minds and practices to change so that you can push through that chasm. So Brandon, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's a very important piece for our listeners. And I wanted to connect with our listeners that are international as well. Although right now we're framing things in the America policy of families first, this is relevant, not in a, okay, the West is something you should follow, not in any way, shape or form, but relevant in that there are gonna be a lot of lessons learned and learning right now in real time as people try to close down these small congregate care and small group care and therapeutic foster homes and try to just pick up those kids and place them in the community without the community services existing. And we see it across the world, Brandon, the kids' outcomes, families' outcomes, and communities' outcomes actually decrease during these reforms while the buy-in and the practice on the ground cope up with what they're being asked. 
And I know I'm going on and on, but what's happening here in care reform is that organizations and individuals are placed in the position of a conundrum. Basically for years, they have been housing children in a transactional way and moving them through the system. And their hearts have been wonderful. These are not bad people in any way, shape or form. And I've been part of that system, but the systems are set up to remove children from these air quotes, broken families, house them and then send them off into the world. And what we've learned from brain research, global research, from all of the innovative people that are kind of taking a deep dive into this field is that kids don't work in that linear longitudinal way. It's all about relationships and heart. And we're trying to overlay these transactional solutions to a transactional system, when really it's important in this care reform to take things deeply back down to the foundation of hearts and relationships and best interests of children. So good. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. And, and it's, it's good to actually have those multiple lenses because we should be learning cross-culturally. We should be learning from what has worked in other contexts, but then always adapting that. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, one of the hats that you wear, so to speak, is on that global piece. Um, so you're working there with Siri that stands for Children's Emergency Relief International. Uh, you mentioned it's based out of Texas, but really working globally. Uh, you work as the global director of advocacy there for Siri. Um, could you share a little bit about, about what, what Siri does and and, and kind of the scope of work that you guys are, are undertaking. Sure, so our tagline at Siri that we're so proud of is protecting childhood. So that's what we do across our country offices. So we have teams in South Africa, Moldova, Sri Lanka, and India. And those teams do various aspects of family-based care whether it be sponsorship work, whether it be relative and kinship work, whether it be helping youth that are aging out of foster care systems. And so across the world, we are part of the care reform movement and actually doing demonstration projects of how care reform can actually happen. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. I mean, and even as you're doing that and you're showing examples, what are some of those examples? If you can kind of give us a little, a little bit of a preview. Yeah, absolutely. So for example, our Sri Lanka team, we set up an office there post-tsunami in 2005. And post-tsunami, there was some emergency legislation that was foster care legislation. So we got on the ground and unfortunately there were, there were many, many children and families that have been traumatized by war and then a natural disaster. And so we worked on supporting those families and communities and continue that work onward. But the interesting thing is, Sri Lanka hasn't gotten to a full legislative look at care reform even now. They're just in the beginning of that process. So we've been leading with a demonstration project on the ground for now, what, 2005 to now, so 15 plus years. And so then we'll have a long time amount of data to show how things work. Same with Moldova. Moldova had the open, opening doors campaign with the European Union. We've been part from the very beginning of the care reform system there and demonstrating things. And in, in India, we are just getting started, but have focused mostly on policy advocacy work. And the reason I share that is not to promote the organization. That's not what I believe this podcast is all about. The idea is that there are many organizations like Siri that are doing incredible work on the ground. And I think the imperative thing in the global care reform movement is for us to be more intentionally coming together and learning from each other. Because each country, as you mentioned so beautifully, each country's environmental setup, the way they do relationships, the history, the kind of practice of social work are fundamentally different. 
And until we're learning from each other in intentional ways, I believe we're still going to end up having these disproportional sprints forward and then fall backwards. Because Brandon, many organizations have been working for 20, 30 years on care reform. And although we're seeing progress, I don't believe we're seeing the change that we all envision yet. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, uh, yeah. And that's a good point. And, and I love what you mentioned there as far as getting people together and sharing practice. You know, one of the greatest privileges of what I get to do with One Million Home is working partnerships and facilitating conversations across multiple agencies. And a lot of these are just small to medium-sized nonprofits, but they're valuing family care, they're valuing child protection, and even even on the fronts of like organizational excellence and and how do we develop our programs and and those programmatic pieces as well, Um, getting to bring those types of minds together to kind of share um, it's, it's actually kind of low hanging fruit uh, on that convening actually is one of those activities that can really punch above its weight. Um, you know, and when this podcast is released, a lot of us will be coming out of the KFO summit where hopefully, uh, we were getting some of those interactions, uh, that, that we, so many of us have been missing, but, um, for us at 1 million home, that's just kind of normal operation is making those, uh, pieces, not because anybody has the silver bullet or not because, there's a magic wand that's going to fix everything, but it's actually in those moments of convening and those moments of sharing information and collaborating that we can actually raise the practice up. So I, I love the way that, that you even um, frame what Siri is doing as, as just another thing to consider. And, and my hope and, and uh, would be that, you know, even some of our listeners would hopefully reach out to us, reach out to you um, to learn more what that could look like, because um, with any of us, whatever organization, whether we're in the U.S. or whether we're in the global south or wherever we are, east, west, uh, we're going to recognize that there's things within our programs that need to be improved upon. And sometimes we can get that strategy, that guidance by just listening to what other people are doing. So and that's really what this podcast is all about. And, and so appreciate that, you know, and, and this other hat, if we can even kind of uh, switch back for a second. I, I love this 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 new role, uh, relatively new role uh, that you're taking up as well as the CEO at the Institute for Child Welfare Innovation. I even just love the title of that. You know, child welfare, um, which is what this podcast is all about. Uh, it's not always known for being an innovative space. I mean, there are innovations, but it's not always. Sometimes it can be a little more just kind of that rote day in day out managing cases. Um, you know, running the organization, getting funds, you know, it kind of just becomes like this perpetual thing. So it's not always known for being an innovative space. Can you tell us a little bit about what you and your team are doing at the Institute for Child Welfare Innovation and, and really even just why is innovation important when it comes to caring for vulnerable kids? Yeah, Um, our team is lucky enough to be kind of examining the status quo or what we call colloquially business as usual in child welfare, which which you outlined brilliantly, that idea of case managing. I'll go back to the word that I used before of transactionalizing children and the idea of just care and protection of children in just the same old ways. So you're right. Uh, Innovation is imperatively important in the idea of truly Um, it's an American colloquialism, I'm sorry, but bringing the system down to the studs and rebuilding it. And when I say bringing it down to the studs, I mean, like, if you've got a building set up, and you've got wooden studs in the middle of the wall, and you pull everything out of that house, out of those walls, even the walling material itself, down to just the foundation and then begin to build again, you're starting with kind of a blank template. And so the innovation that our team is trying to do is reset from traditional structures and boxes ticked and ways that we've been collecting data and look at children's hearts and minds and communities' hearts and minds and saying, how is every aspect of child protection or child welfare, whichever word you're gonna use, 
how are those based on relationships and the specific environment in which children meet, uh, in ch children live? And the difficulty there is that the way child welfare systems have been set up around the US and around the world have become very standardized because people are very worried about risk. And so basically what's happening is that somebody, many systems are saying, you need to do a home study based on A, B, C, and D, and everybody has to do that. And it doesn't matter if that family is from India or from Mexico or from another part of the city, and they have a little bit of different tendencies or different ways of practice. You have to just follow A, B, C, and D. And that's what we at the Institute are looking to unpack and to challenge is to say, how have things been done in a standardized way for children? And how can we innovate to put best interest determination in the forefront of every decision for a child, a family, or a community? Yeah, it's so interesting. When you inherit something, you don't always realize the assumptions that you're making or just kind of where did this process or this formula even originate from. And when you get to that innovative piece and you want to bring things down to the studs, uh, you can actually discover some things that are going to be much more effective. Um, you know, innovation, I think, is, is so underutilized um, within our sector, within this space. Um, and yet you see all the things that innovation drives in other sectors, right, of society. Um, so I just absolutely love that that's what your team is bringing. And, you know, I, I would maybe even just like to put a little flesh on this uh, for our listeners. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about, you know, when a kid is needing to enter protective care of some type, um, you know, they'll, they'll normally go through, I even remember it from the slide deck, I used to work at the foster care agency, we ba basically talk about um, preferential, you know, placements, and you tend to start with, um, is there a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or somebody that this kid could go to. And you, you know, you kind of start there with that point before you even get to, is this kid going to go into stranger care or, you know, community placement or whatever. Um, and you guys are actually working with a particular program called 30 days to family. Um, and this is kind of, a accelerated, if I could use that word, uh, what you guys are, the results of actually getting more kids back with kinship rather than having to see them go into stranger care. So um, can you share with us a little bit about 30 Days to Family and, and you know, how this innovative approach uh, to kinship navigation has led more children to be placed safely with, with uh, their own kinship and within their own uh, family line? Yeah, of course. Um, practice in the US specifically, um, probably seven or eight years ago, really started focusing on that question exactly what you said. When a kid comes into care, then everyone looked for family members and grandma and aunt, et cetera. And usually that was it. So you contacted a couple people that were like the first rung around a child, aunt and grandparents, et cetera. But then the family finding didn't kind of increase further from there. So about eight years ago, an organization in St. Louis called the Foster and Adoptive Care Coalition created this program called 30 Days to Family. And the idea was in that precious first 30 days, which is based on the Fostering to Success Act that was in America, in that first 30 days, how are we finding every connection for a child, working with them and walking alongside them in a navigation way? So that that child does not have to languish and stay with strangers in the foster care system, in the specialized group home system, and any of those options. And it's innovative and logical at the same time, in the sense that this is actually good social work practice, but it has been kind of so drilled out of our psyches as social workers that the innovation is reintroducing the heart to this work. And what the program does itself is, is in that first 30 days, a specialized worker comes in and says, who is important to this child? 
and it goes out to the fourth generation and we find 150 on average connections for a young person. And the game changing nature of that is that nobody can do life alone, period. And so sometimes maybe a family member close by or numbers of family members close by are struggling with something. And a lot of times in this world, it, does, it, it, it has to do with inequities in society, discrimination, all those things. But it doesn't mean ever that there isn't value in somebody's network and their community. There is always value in family. And family, I'm not defining right now as blood. I'm defining the people that you trust that are part of your connections. And so the program looks for old Sunday school teachers or old nurses that took care of a child or old foster care placements or friends from school and works to find all of those connections. And then once those connections are found quickly with urgency saying this kid does not deserve to have a moment in a care system that is not their own community, especially their community of origin. And the data over the past eight years of doing this is astounding. We're finding over 70% of children are able to move with one of those connections within the 30 days. And that over 80% of those moves are ones that the last follow-up are staying there, which is incredible results. And it all comes through just logical, caring, relationship and trust-based work for kids. Yeah, no, that, that answer is just uh, so helpful, Ian, to just kind of, yeah, envision what that innovation piece looks like. And, and you know, you guys, as you said, kind of taking things down to the studs, uh, you know, it creates those opportunities for more effective programs, better practice and, and all of those things. And, and the fact that you guys have actually built this institute around that type of uh, innovation, not only with this initiative, but with other initiatives that you guys are also uh, are, are looking at and training people on. And I know that you guys do a lot of training. So I would uh, encourage you guys, uh, anybody listening to this podcast to uh, go and check out the Institute for Child Welfare Innovation online. We will have the URL uh, in the show notes at thinkorphan.com so that people can uh, find uh, find out more about this work. And, and uh, you know, uh, I would also encourage you guys to just reach out to us directly, reach out to, to, to myself. Um, I'm Brandon at 1millionhome.com. Uh, these are conversations that we're having with Ian and others, and we want to bring more people into this conversation. So uh, reach out to Ian as well. Ian, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Is it just through your guys' website or, or what would that look like? Yeah, through the website, that's pretty easy. It's forchildwelfare.org, F-O-R, forchildwelfare.org. Or um, for the global work at SiriKids.org. So that's C-E-R-I kids.org. Both are easy ways to, to get to me. Um, and I would love to have conversations. Brandon, like you, like One Million Home, like all of what I believe we're doing here is to bring more people together. And I'm hoping that what this podcast has done has just increased people's curiosity, mm. confidence, and just momentum in completely rethinking how we care for children. And it's not an overnight process. It's not an easy process. And it's certainly not something that any one organization or one person can do alone. alone. But as we deeply look into how we can reboot the way that kids are cared for on the basis of relationships, trust, and the stuff that truly is long-standing and long-suffering, that is how I believe we're going to be able to figure it out for the next centuries. Absolutely. So well said, and, and I couldn't agree more. So definitely, if you're listening to this, whether you're a new listener or somebody that's been with us for a while, please reach out. Uh, Ian would love to talk with you. I would love to talk with you. Phil would love to talk to you, even if you were here right now. Um, and, you know, speaking of that connection piece, uh, there are two questions. I know you're familiar with them from uh, however many years ago uh, that we would love to just kind of, uh, you know, 
learn what you've been looking at. And, and uh, so I'll ask you this, what have you read, watched, or listened to? Uh, this could be recently, you don't have to give the same answer you gave five years ago. Uh, what have you watched, read, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children and families with excellence? Well, two, two podcasts and one article. All right. So one podcast is called Justice and the Inner Life. It's from Christian Alliance for Families and Orphans and is just moving to me beyond belief. The second one is called Man Enough. And the podcast is unpacking the idea of masculinity. And you might think, okay, how does that have to do with child welfare? And does it have to do with only men? And what I realized by listening to this podcast is it truly challenges the frameworks and fabrics of our society in a way that is interesting and compelling. Yeah. And so those are the two podcasts that I've been listening to and been really moved to kind of think through. Um, and then the, the publication or the article, I believe that everybody should look at is called Deconstructing the Birdcage. And if you search deconstructing the birdcage and system reform, it'll come up. And it is a very palatable short article that brilliantly, I believe, looks at how systems change. And basically everything that we've been talking about during this podcast is outlined beautifully in that article. No, that's so good. And, and we will be linking all of those in the show notes so you guys can find them quick and easy. I know you had shared the the systems uh, publication with me not too long ago. So I'm getting into it already. Such good work there. And you mentioned Jed's uh, podcast. He's been on with us, of course, a uh, great, great guy overseeing uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans. So yes, absolutely. Highly recommend those. All right. Last question. What person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? It's three people, my three people. son, my daughter, and the young woman that we've got in kinship care. Um, they teach me every moment that they're no different from any child out there in the world, and that we all have different circumstances in life that are outside of our control, but that the common denominator is that we all deserve to feel loved mm. and safe. And so what that informs me, inspires me, and motivates me to do is to look at any orphan and vulnerable care work through the lens of what I would do for my own children. Yeah. And it every time I look at them playing, I look at them crying, I look at them just trying to figure out how to exist in this world, I realize that it's not easy for anybody. And that if we are expected to do that alone or expected to do that with just paid people around us that don't look familiar to us, that aren't from our cultures of origin, then it's going to be a really tough go. Yeah. And we all deserve love and safety. Amen. Well, uh, I think that's about as good of a word as we could end on, Ian. Uh, brother, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for uh, hanging in there. Even we had a couple uh, technical glitches and you just kept on rolling with the punches as you always do. So uh, Ian, all the best to your family and thanks so much for jumping on with us today. Yeah, same to you and to everybody listening and all of our organizations. I send immense amounts of blessings in resilience and in, in progress. Amen. Well, uh, you know, Ian never disappoints. Uh, so really great. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of those people that can be heady, but also just be like super, um, uh, intuitive and, and just kind of like eye-opening with some of the stuff. So, uh, Phil, what were your thoughts on, on my conversation I got to have with, uh, with our, with our friend Ian? Well, like you said, um, Ian does not disappoint. The guy, you know, he talked about the, the that diffusion of idea, you know, theory that he talked about the last time too. And I'm glad he did because it's, it's great every time. It's something that we need to always remember with these ideas that it's not something that happens overnight, but it's also not something that you need an entire population to 
get. And, and I think we're seeing that fortunately and unfortunately over the last couple of years with a lot of the things that have been going on, that it doesn't take a majority to actually have something stick in society. So um, that's something that, that he talked a lot about, which I absolutely appreciate. If you don't get that, folks, go back and listen to it in the first interview as well as this one. He didn't go in as depth into it in this time for good reason. But the other thing about that, Ian, <laughs> makes me laugh about him. I, I actually asked a question at KFO. You know, all right, just bring it down to like fifth grade level. And, and then he started talking about something that was at a master's or PhD level for sure. Uh, I forget exactly what it was at this point. You may remember, but um, it was, it was pretty funny. I think he actually went to what we just talked about a little bit. I think he went to that diffusion of ideas thing, but anyway, uh, maybe some fifth grade, maybe his, when his kids are fifth graders are going to be, they're going to be doing that. I don't know. The thing that always, I really like about Ian um, uh, other than what we've already said and what you've said is, is the, the fact that he's a learner, right? I mean, he's really smart. He's learned a ton. He's done a lot, but there's a lot of people like that, you know? And I think the thing that separates Ian is he is willing to get in there, listen. Um, you know, I've been in rooms with him. He gets impatient when there's no action. Yes. Um, as most high D personalities do. Um, but he is learning. He's listening to find out what is going on in these different areas. As he said during the interview, Different contexts have different things to look for, have different ways they do things, have different. And you and I both know that we've talked to people from all over. We know that we get that. He's working in a lot of different areas. He's done a lot of things. And the fact that he knows that he gets it and he's continually learning and listening is something that I believe we can take and learn from because it's so it's it's pretty easy when you do know a lot of stuff and you have done a lot of things and you've been in a lot of context to just assume that you know the right answer for someone. But I've seen with this guy that he doesn't just say, here's the right answer. He says, all right, what do we have? Let's talk about this. Let's figure out how we can put our collective heads together and figure out the solution for this area. And I know you've worked with him. Have you seen that on the hands-on work you've done with him? Yeah, well, we, we've just been able to start connecting with him more. And, okay. and for sure. I mean, it, he's he's very, he takes those you know, theoretical things and he turns them into practical measures. And I think that, you know, going back to what we talked about with uh, Dr. Birch earlier on in this, in this, uh, in this season, you know, you have to try theory out. And, and I do uh, think that Ian's one of those people that, that is able to bridge that gap and put it into practical um, measures, which is what I've seen. And, and I really love what you said there as well about the learning piece. You know, a lot of what we talked about in this episode was around innovation. Mm -hmm. And the innovation is only going to uh, come when we have been, you know, learning, when we've had that as, as one of our core um, values, right? Um, because we're not going to be able to innovate unless we're learning. Um, and what they are able to um, do at the Institute is based off of learning that they were doing right there in St. Louis. And then they're able to expand that out. And even what they're able to do uh, at, at Siri and what he's doing there, you know, it's, it's kind of that, like, we're, we're monitoring, we're evaluating, and we're learning, you know, like, and, and that's what's really going to kind of drive better practice. That's what's going to drive innovation and, and so forth. So I really feel like Ian exemplifies that a lot. And it, it's fun to kind of understand what he was doing in India and see how he's applying that um, here in the States yeah. um, as, as a practitioner and as an educator. So uh, yeah. yeah, just uh, so much fun getting to talk with him and, and kind of seeing what he sees. Yeah. You know, talking about learning, I, I got to believe that a lot of reasons that he is, he does have that humble learning posture that we talk so much about on this show is because, you know, he did, he was born in India, adopted into the U S go back to India and realize just cause I'm Indian, I don't know Indian culture, right? I need to learn it. I need to understand that things don't happen the way they happen in the U S they don't happen the way they happen, even amongst the States in India, right? The different places, the different cities, the different communities, it's different. It's happening differently, right? And then, you know, seeing the fact that you go there to India and there actually is the caste system, right? I mean, I, I know, and I had the privilege of being able to visit Ian after uh, a World Without Orphans meeting in India. We were in Bangalore together and we, we flew back to uh, Delhi 
and I got to spend um, a, a day with him, uh, spent the night at his place, and we got to hang out um, in Delhi. And he said, hey, you want to go see my in-laws? Um, they're in the slums. I was like, absolutely, of course. Yeah. Um, so we get a little, um, oh, what is it? I want to say tuk-tuk, but I think that's Cambodia. Um, it's the equivalent. What's it called? The, yeah, there's um, like, well, uh, we, we, you know, in Tanzania, we call them bajajis, but they're yeah, those little three-wheeler not, guys. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I, and we packed all of us in there, you know, like we do. Um, it's going to hopefully come to my head what it actually is. I apologize to you folks uh, from India. Um, I have failed you, but that's, that won't be the last time I will tell you that right now, boy. Um, we, yeah, we, we just cruised over there and well, cruise is not necessarily the right word cause it was Delhi. So we kind of put it over there and we, uh, got to spend a couple hours with his father-in-law. Um, and this is where, you know, these are the things we learn by being able to do work around the world. This is a man who is in the lowest ca caste in India. He's brilliant. He's a hairdresser. That's what their family does. He's a brilliant man who we spent a couple hours talking about American politics. Not my favorite topic in the world, but he knew more about it, I think, than I did. And why, I have no idea, but he did. And we just had a great, deep conversation. And what, it, you know, these continually conversation after conversation shows me is that, you know, we have so much to learn from each other. I don't care what your education is. I don't care where you're born. I don't care where you live. I don't care what your social status is. We have so much to learn and we have so much to offer each other just as humans, human to human saying, man, we can, we can get to experience life together. And when we do that, we literally sat in this little tiny room with a bed on in it basically is all it was able to fit. And we sat there, had some chai together and just talked, got to know each other. And it was a beautiful night. It was a beautiful night. There was actually a wedding going on in the slums. Like it was basically a pop-up tent and big party going on. It was, it was so amazing. Yeah. And uh, you know, those are the types of things that we get to do. And we just kind of open ourselves up. That was, that was just, I was like, Hey, I got an extra day. Wow. Um, or I, I made an extra day and said, I want to spend the night. Are you cool having me? And let's just, I just want to see the area. To make oh, awesome. room for stuff like that, you know, when you're going on trips, you know, leave an extra day. Yeah. And don't just like go see the tourist stuff. Like if you, if you know people there, see if they'll take you around and show you what life's really like. And I think that will just open your eyes and open your ears and open your mind to really learning amazing, amazing new things. So that's a special memory I have with Ian. That's like awesome. Beyond. That's like bonus coverage. That's like the special features on the, on the DVD that we used to have. <laughs> Remember those DVDs we used to have a I, couple I of do. years ago? Yes. Yeah. The special yeah. features were the, were the main things. And that, that, that would be a special feature for an India yes. trip, getting to hang out with Ian and meet his, uh, his wife's family. That's very, very cool. So, it was. wow. It was. Well, speaking of learning, uh, you know, we, we learned a lot from Ian today. Would also love to learn from you, Phil, you got a recommendation, something that we could be uh, picking up or watching. Yeah. It's actually a book uh, I'm listening to now. It's it's a uh, Joel Rosenberg. He's one of my favorite authors. He's a great author. He wrote the Auschwitz Escape, and it's I'm 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 actually not done with it. So I'm I've done this a few times. I don't normally recommend a book before I'm done with it. I just know with Rosenberg it's going to be solid. Um, but it's it's a book about um, actually a young boy who becomes orphaned um, in Nazi Germany, and um, and he goes to Auschwitz. And so it's the story of him and it's just, it's another reminder of, um, man, uh, it gets, it, it's amazing that that happened. First of all, um, that we in our humanity allowed that to happen, but, but it did, um, and to learn how we can avoid similar things in the future, what that looks like, but also, you know, to see the orphan heart in the midst of that conversation to see the things and that he's a, such a good author that he doesn't just cut corners on those things to develop the characters. It's really, really good. And I strongly encourage if you don't do this, don't just, don't just read nonfiction, read fiction for the, for storytelling. First of all, so good with the human condition for us to be able to, to be able to read uh, novels and, yeah, it, I mean, this one sure as heck isn't like an escape from reality. Um, this is, it's deep, it's its hard, but it's such a good, powerful um, read that I encourage. And it's its very, 
so far, I mean, yeah, it's tough. Obviously, anything that's dealing with concentration camps is tough for the family. But it's true. And it, I mean, this happened. This stuff happened. So I would, I could even recommend it for, uh, for family too. So yeah, definitely a, definitely a recommendation that I have that I didn't necessarily expect to recommend, you know, honestly, as I was, as I was getting started. Yeah, that's a really, uh, good recommendation, heavy material <laughs> to be sure. But I actually need that advice that you gave about, uh, reading fiction, uh, because I too often just bury myself in nonfiction and topical stuff and don't really dig in as much with uh, fiction stuff that has such uh, tremendous value. So thank you for that recommendation. Uh, thank you for uh, being on the being, being back. Uh, that was a little bit of a gap. People don't see the back end stuff, but that was a little bit of a gap, but it was great to be back with you again, brother. And, and yeah. uh Great to learn from Ian and, and great to continue journeying together. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure to do all this. I love being with everyone. Um, and, you know, going to things like CAFO, like we said, definitely uh, reminds you of this community that we do have, which is, which is, so it is special. So thanks to everyone out there for listening. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. I do hope that you, uh, you know, come go deeper with us, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on uh, via email, uh, reaching out to us. There's different ways to get a hold of us. You know how to do that, hopefully. If not, go to thinkorphan.com and uh, you can you can figure out ways to connect with us. And we would love to respond to any questions you have, any guests that you think we should get on. We would love to um, to hear your recommendations there too. So uh, go rate and review, review the show if you haven't done so already as well. That helps people uh, find it. And uh, I just want to thank you again for um, making this possible by listening. I mean, if people weren't listening, we wouldn't be doing this. It wouldn't. Well, we might, but uh, it's not nearly as effective. So um, thank you for that. And uh, Brandon and I, as always, hope and pray that you take everything that you're uh, learning on this show and you use it to help you uh, love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.